When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome to Moments That Rock, a proud member of the Pantheon Group of Podcasts and home to a plethora of wonderful music-based podcasts. I'm your host, Tony Michaelidis. I put all this together. Feel free to delve through the archives and you'll hear a four-part series with you too. You'll hear interviews with Steve Wimwood, The Cramps, The Ramones, a lot of old archive stuff. And uh, each week we delve into um, the kind of history book, so to speak, of the guests we have. We have everything from people behind the scenes, journalists, uh, music promoters, artists, uh, managers, etc., etc. And I won't babble on too much because I let the people introduce themselves. We have Bill de Young, who's a neighbour of mine from this fair city of St. Petersburg, Florida. Uh, he's going to introduce himself in part two, but I'll do the bit this time. And we also have the very excellent Mr. Dennis McNally, former publicist of The Grateful Dead and author himself. So stay tuned, as you're already here. You'll be listening to it anyway. And enjoy the stories. So... I'll do the introduction on this one. Bill DeYoung is from, originally from Gainesville, where he met up with the Tom Petty boys, became quite uh, sociable and friendly with them, and did a lot of interviews with them over the years. Uh, Bill will be a little more um, uh, interesting with this description of who he is when he comes back. Bill's a published author, and he'll tell you more about that later on. But for now, let's take a deeper dive into Mr. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. I was always a fan of rock and roll, you know, and I, I, I still remember the day that somebody handed me... Um, the album you're going to get it the second heartbreakers album and uh i thought well this is pretty neat uh you know nobody's doing these punchy rock and roll songs with melody anymore this was you know the height of sort of punk and i guess what we in america so dreadfully called new wave music and i thought well this is different then i found out these guys were from florida and, and well you know that really these are people that literally grew up 100 miles from where i did can make incredible music like this. And the first time I saw the Heartbreakers, they were opening for Patti Smith at a, at a concert in Tampa. It was 98 cents to get in. It was the 98 Rock Radio Station's anniversary. And a friend of mine who worked there gave me the tickets because I'm not very interested in Patti Smith. But I remember seeing Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and literally fell off my seat at how great that show was. Patti Smith came on and I left. Didn't care. And the Heartbreakers stayed with me for many, many years. You know, I basically wrote about them constantly and would visit them on the road, and I was the hometown newspaper guy. 
It was 1985, and the band had been off the road for almost uh, almost two years, and the Southern Accents album was coming out, and so uh, they set up camp here at the Don Cesar Hotel in St. Petersburg Beach, where we all live, which is this big old sort of 1920s castle. It's pink. It's a pink castle on the sand, and Tom... Uh, would be in the suite on the eighth floor, which is where he always stayed. It turned out they were always there when, when they were playing in the area. They were doing a special for MTV, which happened to be called, you guessed it, Southern Accents. Um, and uh, I happened to be in town from Gainesville. I knew they were doing this, but I was uh, staying at my parents' house. My, uh, the phone rang, and it was Stan Lynch, who's the drummer in the Heartbreakers, and he says, hey, we're doing this thing on, on the roof of the Don Cesar today. Why don't you come out? Oh, okay. And they were filming the MTV thing. So I go out there, and the band had set up, just the five of them, nobody auxiliary. It was just like in a garage, and they had set up on this sort of patio outside the eighth floor. Now, it's a patio the size of a small house, granted, but there was a, a I guess what you call a dolly track or a, for the camera to roll around, and they were playing. They played for 45 minutes, just the five of them. And bear in mind, it was the first time they'd performed or done anything live, semi-live, in a couple of years. So they were very rusty. They were feeling each other. Right? Benmont had a little, you know, Farfisa organ there. And uh, the, the clip is great. You can see clips of it in that show, Southern Accents, which is around in the netherworld on, online if you look for it. But it was essentially the band, the crew, Tony Dimitriotis, who is Tom Petty and Heartbreaker's manager, and about six other people. And I was one of those six people. And it was just magical, absolutely magical. They played uh, all sorts of things from the old catalog because they didn't really have a set list worked up because they really hadn't thought about it. I remember they played Change of Heart from uh, Long After Dark, which had been on the last tour they did. I remember they played Breakdown, but it went into the old thing they used to do live where Breakdown turned into Hit the Road Jack, the Ray Charles song. Uh, which was great. Petty was wearing his uh, top hat and his little stupid sunglasses. It was that era, folks. And uh, we just, you know, stood off to the side and watched this, and it was just unbelievable. And the song I remember most, because it was new, because it was on Southern Accents, which to me is a, a pivotal record in, in Tom's growth as an artist. The song I remember most they played is called Dogs on the Run. One of the things that, that really kind of roped me in from the very beginning was when I met all of these guys, they were very much a team. They were very much an, an underdog team of uh, a band. Granted, you know, Tom was the, the songwriter and the singer and the focal point and, and amazing in many ways, but he always referred to them as the heartbreakers, himself included. And this is something that we would talk about in the many interviews that we did, was I'm a member of this band. And the guys used to tell me back in the days of uh, Hard Promises and Long After Dark that it was very much a collaborative thing where Tom would bring the songs in or Tom and Mike would bring their songs in and uh, what can we do with this, guys? And they would all work on it. And, um, you know, I think of so many songs from that period that have this great sort of, I don't know, I don't know, it's, it's a sort of a communal vibe because it's not just Tom. I, I think the worm began to turn around Traveling Wilbur's time, but if you go back to the earlier days and listen to some of these songs that have this incredible vibe to them. That's because it's all five of them working together. I'm talking about, from the first album, there's an acoustic song called The Wild One Forever 
that uh, that Stan plays unbelievably on, and uh, they they ended up doing that live for a number of years too. There's some tracks on Hard Promises. You can still change your mind. It was a favorite of Mike Campbell's. It's on Hard Promises. And uh, he was very pleased with that song because it sounded like the Beach Boys. And he and Tom both told me that's what they were trying to do with that song. From Hard Promises, it's called You Can Still Change Your Mind. The evolution of this band was fascinating, especially, uh, I would say, in the 1980s after Howie Epstein joined on bass. Uh, they, They started out great, but after they weren't green anymore, they got better and better and better. And for my money as a fan and for someone who was able to ask Tom and Mike and Ben and Howie and Stan all all through the 80s about this this evolution it all kind of started when they hooked up with Bob Dylan which was in 1985 they uh, they played behind Dylan at fa- the first Farm Aid concert in 85 and then at the end of that year of course they went off to uh, Australia and Japan the tour came to uh, the United States the next year and I, I suppose it went over to England which is uh, I think where they met Jeff Lynne and, and George Harrison came along and all of that stuff happened but in this period 85, 86, 87 they really got tightened up as a band there was a lot of drugs and alcohol involved in this period too folks but listen to the album called Let Me Up I've Had Enough which to me is the definitive Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers album if you get the box set playback there's a whole bunch of outtakes from this album I have an interview on my website that I did with Tom and Mike right after they'd played Madison Square Garden in the summer of 86 with Dylan Tom very happily and very drunkenly told me that it was the only interview he'd done on the whole tour and they played me some of the tracks from the album they were working on, which is Let Me Up, I've Had Enough. And it was just raucous, sloppy, wonderful rock and roll. Um, and Tom was saying, this is all I want to do now for the rest of my life. And of course, it wasn't what he did, and he changed his mind. After he met Jeff Lynne, he changed his mind. But that record, Let Me Up, I've Had Enough, some of the outtakes are just blisteringly great. As I say, sloppy rock and roll. And what he told me, what they both told me, was that they learned this from Dylan. Go in, cut it once, and then leave it alone. You know, maybe Howie would come in and overdub a high harmony on the third chorus or something. But for the most part, these tracks were done exactly once. I wish that they'd work that way again. There's a couple of tracks on the playback box set, Ways to Be Wicked, which uh, Ben and Tom wrote, and they gave to uh, Lone Justice. The Heartbreakers have a version. There's a great song that he co-wrote with Bob Dylan called Got My Mind Made Up. The Dylan cut, and it's also on the playback set. It's sort of the Bo Diddley beat times 10. I think we had a connection because I was Floridian by birth, and so was he. You know, so you get that kind of deep southern thing. I can't say we were friends. You know, I was the hometown journalist, and I met him numerous times in the 80s and in the 90s. The last time I saw him was at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction in 2002. He always knew who I was. We always had a sort of a shorthand rapport because I was, again, somebody from the home state that uh, he knew. I would say that he was very dry, very funny, very sarcastic, very cynical, um, tried very hard to, uh, you know, be be uh, be patient and thoughtful. Um, he also had quite a temper, as I came to learn. Not towards me, but I did see it a few times, uh, even backstage and other places. And, uh, you know, if you crossed him, you were sort of off the list. Um, he was just so dry and had this great sort of drawly sense of humor. I mean, everything you see on those video clips is true. That's just the way he was, you know. Uh, I do think as time went by, he sort of became more 
L.A. than Florida. But I think that's inevitable, isn't it? You know, um, it's like the old hometown is the, the more sort of successful you become and the farther away from it you've been, you know, the old hometown is kind of, uh, you know, scrubbed out of you over time and, and distance and success does that. Um, you know, having said that, there are so many songs that have connections to Gainesville um, in, in the old days. And he left to the very end, to the very last time I spoke to him, he loved to talk about Gainesville and the old days. But the more that time went by, the more, you know, distance there was. It had been a long time ago. I think that my favorite interview that we did was this one at, uh, after they played Madison Square Garden with Bob Dylan in uh, in 86 uh, up in the hotel room um, I sat there with Tom and Mike for about an hour and they you know had been imbibing a little bit and were just really really funny and making fun of everybody and uh, including including me you know some of the greatest clips uh, of the Heartbreakers playing live or maybe the old grey whistle test uh, a lot of English stuff in German TV because uh, yeah, as you know Tony we were talking about how Breaking the Heartbreakers, I like that alliteration, Breaking the Heartbreakers in, in, in America was kind of difficult. The first album came out and just sank like a rock. And it wasn't until they'd gone to England. I remember Petty telling me how amazing it was because I think they toured with Blondie, maybe Nils Lofgren, you know, and this was the middle of the Sex Pistols time. And so they were contemporaries, really, of The Clash. They were contemporaries of Elvis Costello and the attractions, or maybe even pre-attractions. And in England, I think they thought they were an English band, you know, because uh, the English, as you know, really love that short, punchy American rock and roll. In America, at that time, in the 70s, you can, couldn't get arrested doing that. Uh, and so, um, so they basically, and, and I hate the expression new wave, and a lot of us always have, but I think they sort of rode in on the new wave with Blondie and the police and all of that. And a lot of people over here were, were uh, really surprised to discover that not only were they an American band and not English, but they were a bunch of rednecks from Central Florida uh, who grew up, you know, listening to the Rolling Stones. And it, it was it was kind of amazing. Now, the English thing... Obviously, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and I love saying Heartbreakers as opposed to Tom Petty, because as I said before, it was always a band. It was always this group ethic, and that did change over time, but that's a story for another time. Always in England, they were huge, you know, and I think, looking back on it, I think perhaps the English had a sort of proprietary feeling about this band, like, you know, they, they're one of us, and I know they, you know, are that we sort of birthed them, arguably isn't true, but... Uh, England always meant a lot to them, and they were, they used to go over there all the time. Well, you know, Tony, I think taking, uh, first of all, a slightly sarcastic tone, which Tom would appreciate, uh, when we lost Elvis back in 77, uh, John Lennon was uh, not talking to anybody, but the, when he came out with Double Fantasy and was talking, they said, well, how did you feel when Elvis died? And he said, well, you know, Elvis died when he went into the army. Uh, which uh, I can sort of relate to. How did I feel when Tom passed? Um, Tom passed when he fired Stan Lynch in 1993. Uh, for me, that was the end of the Heartbreakers, and it was also, God love him, the end of my relationship with the band. And Stan and I are still friends, I'm glad to say. But th that whole spirit of camaraderie that I had responded to so uh, strongly in the early days was long gone. And this all happened after the Traveling Wilburys and when Tom became, you know, a huge rock star. And instead of working out the music with the band, he told them 
but to play. It's inevitable. All things must pass, to quote another great man. You know, things change. How did I feel when Tom passed away? The last time I spoke to him was, again, at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2002. We had a nice interview. But he had he'd clearly changed. He sort of floated into the room uh, in a cloud of cigarette smoke, of course. And I remember telling him that he reminded me of George Harrison, who had died the year before. I said, you remind me of George, the way you carry yourself. And he says, George who? Like, uh, I think he thought maybe I meant George Draculius, who's one of his engineers. How did I feel when Tom died? Uh, sad, like all of us. Uh, you know, it's certainly the end of an era. Um, I had pretty much nothing but great experiences in those days. Uh, it made me sad that, uh, you know, a, a wife lost, lost her husband and two wonderful young women lost their father. Uh, I knew Tom's father fairly well and his brother and a whole lot, and his ex-wife, a lot of friends from Gainesville. And so it's always sad when somebody like that is gone. Um, musically, for me, for me, it had all ended a long time before that. But, uh, you know, I think I think we're all lucky, as in the case of Lennon and Prince and Bowie and everybody else great who's gone, that the music remains. And it's so strong that it will always be here. It'll be here after you're gone, Tony, after I'm gone. And Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers have a place in my heart and the hearts of many, many millions of people. So that's the gift of art, isn't it? Hilda Young, you are so right, sir. The gift of art and all those names that will last forever. We'll be back after this. You're listening to Moments That Rock with me, Tony Michaelidis, part of the Pantheon group of podcasts. Obviously, you're here already. Don't go away, because there's lots more on this platform. So who do we have now? My name is Dennis McNally, and I was the Grateful Dead's publicist from 1984 until Jerry's death, and then with the company for another uh, 10, 15 years. I also wrote a book uh, about the Grateful Dead uh, called A Long Strange Trip, uh, The Inside History of the Grateful Dead, which, plug, um, actually made it to the New York Times bestseller list for one week, um, but it was a good week. Before I became the publicist, uh, in 1980, Jerry Garcia, uh, invited me to be their biographer uh, because he liked the book I had done about Jack Kerouac, um, who I might add uh, just last weekend uh, his, was the centennial of his birth, a uh, hundred years. What was really getting to me uh, last week um, was that my I began that book 50 years ago. Um, I had the idea in February of 1972, a, a, a guy gave it to me, uh, gave me the idea. Um, I have, was talking about sort of generalities and he said, uh, you should write a book about Kerouac. His papers are at Columbia and you can stay with my friends in the Bronx. So I wrote that book about Kerouac and I, in the process, the same guy had also turned me on the Grateful Dead and uh, I wanted to uh, write a book about the Grateful Dead and uh, the universe decided to listen to me and Jerry. Um, and I eventually met Jerry and oh so casually mentioned that I had written this book and sent it to him. And he got very excited because Kerouac, when he was 16, Kerouac was his role, his role model. And frankly, it stayed that way until the day he died. Um, he, his you know, sort of way of navigating through life, um, he, he took from the lessons of On the Road uh, about improvisation and spontaneity and et cetera. Brought me in as the biographer. I worked on that for a while. 
they needed a publicist and I needed a job. And I tried to do both simultaneously, which was clinically insane, um, not only because the mentality of, of being an honest historian, and I think I was, and a publicist, publicist is there to, uh, to be kind to his clients. I, I never had to lie working for the Grateful Dead because the truth was much weirder and stranger than anything anybody would believe anyway. Um, there were some things I didn't say, obviously. So then I became the publicist and, and enjoyed moments that you wouldn't believe. A moment that rocked my world. Well, for instance, I had uh, made connections with a lot of uh, politicians and whatnot, just because they like to go to shows for starters. We had been invited to the Senate dining room uh, to have lunch with Senator Pat Leahy, uh, who was one of our favorite people, and our Senator, uh, Barbara Boxer, who was, uh, who was from Marin. I mean, we, we, we actually sort of, we knew her as a person. So we sit down as Jerry and Mickey and I forget who else was all there and we sit down and as soon as we sat down the senator for the 19th century uh, Strom Thurmond and I could see him lean over to a younger person at his table and say what I interpreted as who that pointing to Jerry was not uncommon we were sitting relatively near the door so as Strom is leaving as we're getting there he uh, immediately stops at our table because there is a, some kind of interesting moth to flame about uh, politicians and famous people uh, and musicians in particular. I always know that, that potentially they can ask them to do a benefit for them. So Strom, you know, comes over the table and as he's approaching the table, the senators are rising because they're always polite to each other. You want to hate each other. And um, Jerry's rising because he knows what's coming. And so introductions are being made and, and Strom is saying, looks at Jerry and says, I understand you're the leader of this here organization. And Jerry's going, well, I don't know about that, Senator, and blah, 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 blah. And they shake hands and they go. And I just, I sat there slack-jawed at this, this refugee from the Civil War, or, or you know, from pre, the antebellum South, um, shaking hands, you know, really a 19th century person, shaking hands with somebody from the 21st century, namely Jerry. Um, it definitely rocked my world. It was really one of the weirdest moments I've ever, <laughs> I ever experienced. Excellent. Dennis McNally, former publicist for The Grateful Dead. One of those had to be their moments. We've got another. Another moment that rocked my world, speaking of Pat Leahy had invited us to lunch. This. This was one of the all-timers. Um, 1994, the Grateful Dead were playing at RFK Stadium. Pat Lay, he was there. As a matter of fact, he was wearing a tie-dye t-shirt and shorts, and he was dancing. You know, having U.S. senators that actually can dance to rock and roll, not that anybody was asking, but I approve. And then ended up standing um, near the stage stairs, and this runner comes down from the office of, RF of RFK. They've tracked Patrick down. Um, and then there's a note for him. So I give Pat the note. He says, do you have a phone? And as a matter of fact, this is before cell phones, but um, we, at that point, the Grateful Dead had uh, landline, you know, real phones, uh, hardwired at every stage. We, you know, we just had to have them. So he, he hangs up and then tells, turns and tells me everything that just had happened. 
Senator Leahy was chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee. And by the rules, if a president of the United States starts a, an action, i.e. is bombing someone, he has to tell Pat. Pat couldn't tell him no, but he had to tell Pat. So it's the Secretary of State, who's the man before Madeleine Albright. He, uh, the Secretary of State tells Pat that, you know, what, what this is about. And, um, and then he says, you know, it's, it's rather loud there. Uh, and Pat says, oh yeah, that, that sting. This is not a rock, you know, a secretary of state who's a, much of a rock and roll fan. Um, and he's going, huh? And, and passes Sting, you know, the musician. I'm at the Grateful Dead concert. And the guy says, uh, do you have time for the president? And Pat says, yes. And the president comes on and, and Bill Clinton being a little hipper uh, than the secretary of state didn't waste time with asking questions. He knew where Pat was, hangs up, turns to me and tells me all this stuff. And I had this moment, all kidding aside, that truly rocked me because I suddenly was reflecting that at that moment, you know, it was a Saturday for starters. Even in the White House, there were probably only 20 people that knew about this. I mean, the, this decision he was making. At that moment, it was you know, something of a major secret. In an hour, of course, the whole world would know. But at that moment, you know, there's some people at NSA and there's some people at the Pentagon, but, you know, it's a pretty closely guarded secret. And now I know, and I'm stoned. And I'm sitting there thinking, it's a great country. That's one of the, uh, the classics. That is definitely one of the classics. That was Mr. Dennis McNally. There's more to come from Dennis in a future Moments That Rock. Moments That Rock is here as part of the Pantheon Group podcast. We also brought you a Mr. Bill DeYoung telling stories about Tom Petty. And Bill will be back in a few weeks uh, with some more stories. But uh, give me an idea to share one of my own, actually. Um, it's quite humorous. Well, I thought, I, I thought it was quite humorous at the time. <laughs> it was a complete disaster. So there I was working with police um, around the Synchronicity album, 1981, I think. And um, I got them to play... Uh, and, and performed, shall I say, on a TV show in the north of England, the BBC, called Cheggers Plays Pop, which was presented by um, a quirky little Liverpudlian. And it was around the children's TV time slot, which was like four till five. Now, Sting, you've got to remember, was filming June at the time, and he'd injured his arm, and he's had his arm in a sling, so he's Sting in the sling, actually. And uh, got on this TV in Manchester, and it was miming, as in lip-syncing, um, but they had to do camera run-throughs. Of course, the thing wasn't available for the whole time. So uh, they sent the other two up, Andy Summers and Stuart Copeland. And um, Sting came up later. Now, he had a window of about two hours to get to Manchester, do his little bit in front of camera, and then return to continue filming. So I went down to meet the guys, the other two, at the BBC while they were doing the run-through. And, um, yeah, it was everything was fine. Looked to my watch. I thought, whoops, got to go and get the boy. So shot out into my car. And uh, drove to Manchester Airport, which is about 20, 25 minutes away. Uh, parked my car in the multi-storey, shot down the elevator, across the concourse, just looked up at the board, and um, it said arrivals. And there it was, his plane from London arriving. Well, not his plane, but everybody else's plane as well. And um, I went towards the arrivals gate, and um, doors open, and there's your boy. Pops over, how are you doing, Toe? Blah, blah, blah. We have a little natter, going to the elevator. We walk to the elevator, the old doors open, we get in. Just as I'm about to um, reach for the button, he goes, where are you parked? So there's this brief pause where I go, huh. I couldn't remember where I'd left my car. So you know how big airports 
car parks are. Like, God knows how many levels. So there we go. Sting's on one level, level six. I'm on level seven, shouting down, saying, uh, it's not here. You have a look further down, Sting, and I'll go up one. And um, still to remember to this day, I mean, he took it really well. It was a laugh. We were laughing all the way in. And um, But can you imagine being a businessman or somebody coming back from a day's work in London to arrive home late and, and going to get your car and finding Sting with his arm in a sling, wandering around, um, you know, Manchester Airport uh, multi-storey car park and kind of doing a double take and thinking... Because at the time, you got to remember, the police were the biggest band in the world. It's all about 10 million records, every breath you take time, blah, 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 blah. So that's kind of the end of this uh, episode of Moments That Rock with a moment that rock uh, my world. But in fact, there's probably hundreds of them, more than anybody I could ever get on. But we'll be back next week. Don't forget to listen to uh, all the other podcasts on Pantheon. Pantheon is the largest music-based only podcast site in the world. It's been a pleasure presenting this to you, and we'll be back for more. But don't forget, roll through, see what else you can find on here as well. Um, Like it, rate it, do whatever you want, subscribe, and we'll see you later. Thank you very much, people. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.